If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. In this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation with my former colleague from Partners in Healing in Minnetonka, Minnesota, Dr. Daniel Cohen. I'm so happy he agreed to be with me on the show because we've always had a good rapport with each other, and yet I never really got a chance to talk to him about what the art of his method was. We get into his career as a developmental behavioral pediatrician, his early years working on a reservation in New Mexico, and his experience at the University of Minnesota as the Director of Education and Training for over 25 years. One of my reasons for doing this podcast is purely selfish, which, which is I want to learn more about what other health professionals do in their fields, and I'm happy to say I got way more than I bargained for from this mentioned storyteller. I felt like a student a number of times during our conversation. I'm certain you'll learn something too. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with my colleague and friend, Dr. Daniel Cohen. Dr. Dan, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Um, really interested in kind of learning your background, how you how you got into this field. Where where did this start? How long have you been in the field? Oh my goodness. Um, well, uh, it's hard to believe since I feel so youthful that I've been doing this for over forty years. But um, after graduating medical school in in nineteen seventy, um, my class had the distinction of being the last class of something people haven't heard of, which is the doctor draft. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, our country was in a war in Vietnam. Uh, many of us were not um, happy with that war, and the, uh, the government had a lottery system for medical school graduates, and if your birthday was drawn as, and you had a low number, you were going to Vietnam to work there as a doctor, and I didn't see that as part of my future, yeah. so um, it didn't seem right to me to work to patch up people to go out and get shot again right. or blown up again. So <clears throat> the, the the options were to do something that was legal, that was an alternative, or to do something that was illegal, like move to Canada. Um, it was illegal only if you tried to move back. Um, so I joined the public health service, and actually, when I think about, so how come I'm who I am today? Yeah. How did that, you, that was a what was the, a part that I never would have, probably never would have done. Mm -hmm. Where it, so in a strange sort of way, yeah, I have the, that war to thank, as it were, for for how how things ended up. So long and the short of it is, I I signed up for the public health service. I was able to determine where and what I would do within that system. So. I joined the Indian Health Service and spent not only the two-year obligation, but, but the better part of the next five and a half years working on the Navajo Reservation in, in Arizona. 
<clears throat> in that setting, it was uh, general pediatrics because mm-hmm. I had had a year of, of training. My internship came before I was obliged to respond to this draft stuff. Where, where did you go to school originally, at, medical school? At the Wayne State University Wayne State. In, okay. in Detroit. Okay. <clears throat> and um, so then, you know, having grown up in a major urban center, as did my wife who came yeah. from Pittsburgh, we moved to this incredibly third world environment, rural in northeastern Arizona. And that's, that's Fort Defiance? Fort Defiance, Arizona, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, it was quite an, an education uh, in all sorts of ways. Um, poverty was incredible. Alcoholism rate was incredible. STD, then called still venereal disease, yeah. rate was 25 times the national average. It, oh, was, wow. it was really quite an amazing... And, and many of the diseases that we were faced with treating were things that we had learned about were a matter of history. Mm. So we had measles epidemics. We had diphtheria epidemics. Oh, wow. We had bubonic plague if you can imagine in the 1970s in, in, in america yeah it was it was quite remarkable and so in addition the the other sort of ongoing learning that was happening that mostly was not conscious and and was happening i became aware of its impact later Mm. as I contemplated it, but was was all of this uh, cross-cultural education about Native Americans and Native American healing and, and how that uh, how I had to wrap my head around it. And how, did, how did they deal with, with the westernized belief system of, of healing compared well, to what they were looking for, what they, what, 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 the way they thought things would, would improve? I think, I think the best that way to characterize that would, to, would be to say ambivalent. I think a lot of yeah. people, especially the younger <clears throat> generation, um, sort of recognized that they could benefit from medication, that it was, in fact, a free health care system for them, that if they needed to be in the hospital, hospitalized overnight, that, that they would do so. But we also often ran into head-on clashes with, with Native healing, and people would... Uh, we, we invited the medicine man and other healers to come to the hospital and yeah. wor- work there. But some very traditional people wouldn't do that because the environment was wrong yeah. for them. Others did. Sometimes they came and took the patients out of the hospital against our advice. Yeah. And uh, so then we had to do all those papers that said leaving against medical advice. But of course they were not really, they were just seeking spiritual healing yeah. from, from yeah. their own native healers and, that was something that took quite a while. Um, I, we didn't leave after two years after the obligation. The obligation to the selective service was up after two yeah. years, and my wife and I said, do you want to leave? He said, no. <laughs> huh. And we decided to stay, and then I went and finished my residency, and then came back to the reservation. And um, Yeah, then ultimately we decided that we... How long were you there for then? Well, on and off for almost seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, did, did did you find after a period of time some of the some of the healers in their world became more interested or integrated with some of the stuff you were doing? Well, uh, I don't know about integrated, but trust yeah. and friendship happened yeah. pretty much right after we spent more than two years. Hmm. Because we would say, well, there were there were nine doctors that of us that were new the same year out of a staff of fourteen, on in the hospital, and uh, and eight left after two years, and we stayed, 
and we said we were staying. People kept saying, because they kept having parties, you know, for yeah, yeah. going away mm-hmm. parties. Yeah. People said, well, when are you leaving? Well, I'm not leaving. No, no, no. That's what everybody says. Yeah. When are you leaving? And we didn't leave. And within weeks of not having left and busying ourselves with welcoming new doctors coming, blah, 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 yeah. we started getting invited to healing ceremonies. Yeah. We they knew. They saw your commitment. Yeah, it was so interesting. And, yeah. it, it, of course, we was like, What's up with this? You yeah. know, we didn't we didn't realize what it was yeah. until after it had been going on. That's interesting. I, I spent a week when I was in college, my senior year of college. I, I went up to Turtle Mountain uh, Reservation, way border of Canada and North yeah. Dakota. And uh, the project was really to to there was kind of a you know a spiritual you know connection. I, I went to a Catholic college. Oddly enough, there's a Lutheran church on the reservation, even within this, um, there's, there's a kind of a center there where they, they do a lot of their, uh, ritual, uh, things they have, you know, they have earth homes and teepees and stuff set up so people can go visit there in the warmer months, obviously. <laughs> and, um, but part of it is kind of learning about each other's culture, but they have, they've, they've done this thing. It, it, it felt a little forced to me just because my resistance is that, you're, you know, you're taking someone's culture from them by like introducing a, a religion and planting a church in this place. Right. But I found it fascinating that you know they actually integrated the pieces that they felt connected to their, um, what what they believed as the heart of their their spirituality, and a lot of it had to do with community, and that yeah. was that was what they saw in there, and. It was okay for them to have another, you know, religious figure if they thought Jesus did something important. They were fine with that. They didn't necessarily have to, you know, buy into the 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 business of of Christianity. <laughs> they just really felt like there was a piece in there, and they could connect to, you know, other people in the community that way. And and I think the other people in the community did the same, basically, as as part of that. So. It's very interesting because there are parallels, I think, and probably in all the tribes, but certainly the Navajo, our largest tribe, and um, there's a tremendous amount of, some people would call infiltration, others would use not-so-pleasant other words. Um, The Mormon Church was very active, still is, in coming on missions from Utah to Arizona and Colorado and bringing people into the church and 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 uh, various other Christian um, groups ha- have sort of made a foothold in the reservation, so much so that in, in a lot of the schools, the children were told that they couldn't speak their uh-huh. native language, that they had to speak English. Uh, and that's clearly problematic. <laughs> it was really a serious, serious problem. And so we we sort of stayed away from even talking about that stuff mm-hmm. unless somebody brought it up yeah. because it was a real hot political question. And, 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 the, and the people themselves differed in the way they reacted and responded. Okay. There were some who became active in the church, but they kept they kept their own native healing beliefs and... So I don't think that healing per se was as much uh, part of that dilemma as yeah. as other aspects of life and prayer and, and did so you, on. Did you pick up anything um, in, if, in, during that time in residency and working with them as something that you brought to your medical practice? Is there anything, any sort of way of of seeing or anything that you that you grabbed onto? I think that um, you know, part of my own 
sort of uh, maturation in understanding the spiritual as part of who we are and being willing to talk about it grew as a result of that awareness, but in a broader sense and more after having left there than kind of rethinking it. Because in fact, even today in medical school, you don't hear about spirituality. Uh, I think in some curricula, you it may be a part of it and it's talked about and and some probably do better than others but when i was going to medical school you didn't talk about it and in fact in relation to the work that i do now when i was in medical school and in residency nobody talked about mental health of children yeah or emotional children don't get anxious yeah children don't get depressed children don't have these those are problems of adults yeah except those adults used to be children yeah you know how how is it that you ended up in working in pediatrics or with children there on the reservation and 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 more with that than with adults correct yeah um well i always knew, i knew when i was 12 that i was going to be a pediatrician i don't uh, know why uh, I, I was the only kid in my neighborhood who babysat for only boy I've, who, who babysat I have the same story yeah. um no uh, everybody all the others were girls so so parents with with boy children like to have a boy babysitter yeah. and and that that worked just fine and i i knew and in the medical school i thought i would be i had this fantasy of being a child psychiatrist which is very interesting given where i ended up but um then i was told by a couple of my heroes in medical school who were child psychiatry child psychology and and pediatric social worker people that i did some electives with in in internship that if you really want to help people, children, people, and yeah. families with emotional stuff, then be a pediatrician oh. and get them before they get so bad that they end up with the psychiatrist right. or that they get so bad that they need to be in a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. And, and those were really wonderful words of advice. So that's why I did my training in pediatrics. My, my training was interrupted by the time in the service, but since I had... A year of training in pediatrics. When I got to the okay, reservation, gotcha. they made me the second pediatrician. Then I went off and finished my residency. That was at the Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City. That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> and uh, and then I was chief resident. And then we came back to the reservation for a couple more years. Now, fully trained pediatrician and dug into... Uh, although even there, uh, I did a lot of things that if you took somebody who had who was my same age and had this sort of same residency training. Yeah, yeah. I did stuff on the reservation that no one my age and experience oh, did. I, I mean, I del- delivered this. a lot of babies, saw a lot of adults, took yeah. care of problems that I would never, ever see again. And uh, while that was anxiety-producing while it was happening, I learned a lot from my adult medicine colleagues who were also pretty much in the same boat. Yeah. And there, because they wanted to be there, yeah. it was, yeah, it was an alternative to other stuff, but they could have done other things. You know, they oh, could absolutely. Have, could have worked in the prisons. They could have, worked, could have worked a lot of places, and they chose to be there. So we had that kind of kindred spirit. And many of us have kept in touch with each other, yeah. and that's, that's uh, almost 40 years ago. Yeah. So. I can imagine the, the being in the line of fire as, as it as it was. Even though you weren't you weren't in, in war, you were in a place that was in in such great need oh. that you're almost in the same situation. And the, and I, I mean, I there's I, I feel like there's something going on in medicine now where people end up almost becoming uh, too specialized. Whereas in the situation you were in, it, you you become 
so generalized out of need that you end up sort of you know making all sorts of connections and when you come back to specialization at that point you're you're just you know much more much more aware of the of the larger dynamics of things yeah you know it's interesting one of the things that i used to tell the students when i because i did a lot of academic work um for 35 years at the university um I used to remind the pediatric residents that the first family physicians were pediatricians. Long before there was an academy of family physicians, there was an academy of pediatricians. And yeah. they used to do, well, my pediatrician came to see me at my house when I was a kid. Yep. Drove up, parked out, you know, everybody knew the pediatrician was there. You know, everybody in the block knew somebody was sick, you know, yeah. when people did house calls. I never, I never made house calls. I don't feel too deficient for not having made <laughs> house calls but but I think there's a certain piece of being in people's homes and I have a colleague now yeah. who's who had done some training with us who actually does house calls here in the Twin Cities and she's remarkable in that way um, you can pick up a lot of information I've done a lot of house call work so yeah um, I, with adults for for years with you know different kind of chronic pain type things you 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 start to see certain behavioral things just from being with them that you can you know you you can use them to some extent but also because i do work with newborns usually who are having some you know some challenge um so, sometimes it's something as simple as nursing challenge um but sometimes you get the sense that the the baby's sympathetic nervous system is just like fired up and yep. you get into the home and sometimes you see the ecosystem a little out of balance and yeah I, you know it just helps me to kind of realize okay dad needs to be hearing this conversation now or you know their care person care you know if they've got a nanny or somebody in the house right. you know maybe there's not there's not good communication happening here i need to kind of get these guys together and that actually a lot of times will help solve the problem that's really insightful and and it's great that you do that i my sort of one step removed from that is when I when I have an intuition that I, I need to should know more my way of going about that is to is to uh, ask the child typically the child first but sometimes parents as well okay let's do an experiment all kids love experiments yeah, yeah. Is it? so and you can do the experiment with your eyes open your eyes closed I don't care but Let's say we had a video of your living room and you were having one of those tummy aches or one of those facial tics or one of those yeah. whatever they're yeah. there for, one of those things your mother calls a tantrum. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I had that video, what would I see and hear? Oh, that's great. And... And so sometimes they need a little coaching to understand what I'm really saying. Sometimes the mother will jump in uninvited and, and, yeah. say, and say, no, he's, what he means is. <laughs> no, or if I was sitting there with you, what would I see? Okay, so, so show me what, it, what it's like. So where's the couch? Where's the chair? Where's this? Where's that? And then they get into it. And it's this sort of dissociative kind of experience. Yeah. It's very clear to me that they're there while they're talking about it. And I learn a lot. Oh yeah, you know it's just like you were just saying about that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great use. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like getting them to tell their story, right? And but from their perspective, and not a thou shalt kind of, but yeah. in a but in a real sort of matter of fact. I mean, I 
I, if anything, just the facts. I intend to be authentic, you know. Yeah. And it's I wouldn't ask you if it wasn't important. I think it's important, don't yeah. you think it's important? Oh, absolutely. I've never been to your house, have I? Yeah. You know, no. Yeah. So that's, I that's, don't do that with everybody. It depends on situation. Yeah. Yeah. So so take me back into the timeline. So seven years in in um, Arizona, you go to Oklahoma from there. No, I uh, five year, uh, three years in in Arizona, then a year and a half in Oklahoma, and then back to the reservation in Arizona. Oh, okay. And then from there to here, largely because our kids were getting older. Yeah. And truth is, we wanted to be able to raise them in the context of a Jewish community. And in Fort Defiance, Arizona, there was no synagogue, of course. And, there were, you know, the closest one was 175 miles yeah. in Albuquerque. Okay. And, so that was one motivation. The other was that I wanted to teach, and while we from time to time had students there, um, it wasn't the environment I was looking for for yeah. teaching. So I started looking for ads, and about the time I started looking for ads in the pediatric journal, one popped up for the Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, and I said, oh. So I wrote a letter and made a phone call and made a. It really wasn't an application. It was just a letter. And then I get invited to come and interview the the Monday and Tuesday before Thanksgiving, 1977. It's a long time ago. And so, so you, you started working at the hospital there? And I came. I took. <laughs> I was I was naive. And I, uh, and I was, even though I'd been practicing medicine for whatever it was, eight years by that time I moved, um, I, I made a mistake. I took two full-time jobs for one salary, yeah, which they called half-time positions. <laughs> half-time, Be, beware of half-time positions exactly, anytime. Exactly, half-time director of the emergency room. They had never had one. I was then and am now still the yeah. first ever director of that emergency room at Children's Hospital in yeah. Minneapolis and half-time director of medical education, assistant director of medical education. Both were... You know, I, I asked, and he said, no, 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 it's not that busy. It seemed perfect based on what you wanted to do. You had you could do a little bit of, you know, medical work and, and get education exactly. things started. Exactly, And it was fun, and I enjoyed it, but it was... But in order to build, and and, it, and they really wanted somebody to build, uh, either or both of those roles would have required um, another me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I... So then... After doing that for three years, then I said no, thank you to the emergency room job and moved yeah. moved full time into medical education. Okay. And at that time, the director of medical education was beginning to form the first developmental behavioral pediatrics program. It was one of the first five or six in the country. Today, there are ninety at, at the hospital. Then at, at the hospital, but in affiliation with the university with the, with the University of Minnesota. And that's, right. so that's what you ended up. You you became the director then over time. Yeah, over time. Yeah. And and how long how long were you involved as director there? Well, um, the let's see, I was director. I became director in 1986, and then uh, the program left physically left to Children's Hospital in '92. That's a story I don't want to talk about. Okay. And um, and but moved lock, stock, and barrel physically to the University of Minnesota, where it stayed, and I remained the director until I retired from that program in 2013. So was director of the clinical program and director of the fellowship training program, which is after residency, and director of the 
residency rotation, all the pediatric residents had to spend a month in our program. Okay. So, so then you, from, from during that time, did you start your, your private practice? Well, I had, uh, when you work for the University of Minnesota Medical School, you're, you're also part of the practice group called University of Minnesota Physicians. And okay. so <clears throat> we all had our private patients. And because of the nature of the work in developmental behavioral pediatrics, when the residents were with us, they sat in with us. They didn't independently see patients, which is not the case in most other specialties, yeah. where the residents go in the room, they see the patient, they come out, they report, and that's masquerades as education, pardon yeah. the political statement. Yeah. Um, but it, but with us, the the uh, intentional goal and the the learning objective was sit in with the people who do this and learn by osmosis yeah. and then discussion afterwards. What did you see? What did you hear? What did you like? What would you that's, think you'd have done differently? That's great. You know, stuff like that. And it was great, and I loved it. And I thought I thought then, and I think now that really my goal for all of that was uh, um, to help people learn to listen and learn to talk. <laughs> yeah. And and so you were talking before we started about what's what's this communication stuff. I mean, really, that's been my goal right along is to, uh, if, I, if I could change one thing, yeah. it would be to have doctors know how to listen and recognize that what they say is what people hear Absolutely. and what they think and how they feel and how they act. Yeah. And that's why I make a big deal about the very, what seems to some people to be simplistic, but the very simple use of precise words. Certain words are not allowed in my office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the things that I love about what the, the micraniosacral training I did through the Uppledger Institute, Dr. Uppledger was the osteopath who, you know, coined the term, but really he was just building on an old osteopathic model. But, you know, he he really picked up on on a lot of the on the, the communication aspect of what was going on. So part of the training that we do is uh, <clears throat> actually studying um, just some basic constructs of psychology and psychologic models, like you know Gestalt and 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 Jung and psychosynthesis and different things, so that we kind of understand the experience of the person on the table when they use certain words. Right. So you know if they use you know, a specific phrase or something, we kind of know the space that they're in, you know, or we, we know that something's, you know, it's sometimes it hits you over the head. One of my, one of my clients, an adult client who was in a terrible car accident, um, said to me at one point when she was on the table, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling something in my knee. And I said, what is it, you know, what does it feel like? Are you, you know, is there you know, an image or a texture or anything that you see? She said, looks like a deadbolt. feels like a deadbolt. And I said, is it locked or unlocked? And, you know, in our, in our work, we can feel the shift in the body immediately. As soon as we hit that, we knew, we knew the trigger was there. (laughs) So then it's, then it's about supporting that process as, as things are coming through. And I, and that's just listening. That's just listening skills that we develop. And I don't, I don't even talk that much during my sessions, but when I can feel a change going on, I might just say, how are you doing? And suddenly this, this this stuff comes up. So. so if we were having this conversation and I was the teacher, yeah. I would ask you if it was okay if I pick on you just a tad. Yeah. And it would be to say, just eliminate the word just from what you said. Okay. 
you were listening. Yeah. And so actually, I, and I give a lot of talks to doctors and other therapists and, and stuff, and, and my favorite of all is to talk about language, how we, how we say and what we say mm, and yeah. how come and all that. And uh, you probably know this, but my favorite I, slide, there's two slides. There's one that says listen, and the next one says if you change the letters around, it spells silent. Yeah. And I don't know, whoever invented that really had the right idea. It took me till I was much older to learn <laughs> to learn that, but, but now I teach it all the time. I love that. Because how else can you listen except by being silent? Yeah. And I tell my audiences very clearly, if I can learn to be quiet, anybody can. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, that's, that's fantastic. It's really true. And it's so interesting that parents, when you tell parents this... I'll give you an example. So just yesterday it happened. I was meeting with a mom and dad and their six-year-old boy who's got a variety of struggles. And so he was playing and the parents and I were talking and the kids started doing something that wasn't acceptable to them. I, you know, what's acceptable to parents and what's acceptable yeah. to me may be different, but, but it was sort of annoying, but not a big deal. But the dad said, it's, it's time to cut that out. Okay. So I said, boy, that was perfect, except for the last word. When you say, it's time to cut that out, and you stop there, that's perfect. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's going to work, but you could say it again, and then yeah. it's time to cut that out. Same words, different emphasis, and you're much more likely to get a response. But when you say, it's time to cut that out, okay, you're asking a question. They hear it as an option yeah. to say no. They never discuss that, but then they don't stop because they wanted to do it in the first place. That's why they're doing right. it. And when they don't stop, we don't realize that we gave them a choice, so then we get angry. Yeah. And we say, I told you to stop doing that. And if the kid could articulate what they're feeling, they would say, no, no, you didn't, Daddy. You gave me a choice. Remember, you said, okay, but of course, six-year-old is not going to say that. Yeah. So the dad gets this huge awareness on his face. And he says, that's right. And I say that all the time. I, and I said, you used to say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's right? great. So, so these, these opportunities, I consider that to be, if I have a forte, that's a forte. I, I listen carefully to what people say. I gently, even at a first visit, interrupt people and ask them if I can tell them something about what they said and how they said it. And then later I explain to them why I make a big deal about words. Because how we talk is how we think. Yeah. How we think is how we feel. How we feel is how we act. So if you want to change an action, you can say, stop that. But that doesn't work. And I always ask, so right. I'll ask you, have you ever been worried about something? Of course. And did anybody say to you, Ah, don't worry about that. Yeah, it's the worst. Did it's, it help you? No. I mean, it's funny because it was it was something I learned in training too. Is like never tell someone to relax when you know that they're stressed out. It's, not, it's the last thing they want to hear. They're already struggling with that. Exactly. But help me to not worry. Yeah. Show me. Yeah. And then you don't have to say it. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. People it typically. When you say these and explain these things to people, you can see the light bulb go on. Yeah. You know, it's 
it's very gratifying. So, so how does this lead? So, the, the topic I know we we would like to get into today is this, uh, you know, pediatric. You, you do work with teens as well, um, working with self-regulation. Um, how much how much of this is for the i mean and how much of this do you get in and, and also i know hypnotherapy is part of what you do so right. maybe kind of you know start to explain how how you piece these things together well it all starts with a good relationship yeah without that you could be the best clinician best diagnostician in the world and you could publish the papers and do the research but if you don't know how to establish rapport with somebody yeah. And that comes with language. And everybody does it differently. I, I had to consciously decide that because I like to have fun and I'm pretty good at telling jokes, that I could be that way when I'm being a doctor. That I didn't have to be somebody else that somebody modeled or wrote in a book that said, this is how doctors act. You have to... I, I'll tell you, I, I always reminded of the first, very first day, very first class in medical school 1966 mm-hmm. the professor and chairman of the department of anatomy I'll leave his name off well he's probably not alive anymore stood in front of the class at 8 o'clock in the morning class of 130 people and he said with an abject sincerity meaning every word class you must wear a tie hmm and he meant it. And and what he expected, of course, half the class from that moment on did not. Right? It was the rebellious. Because it was 1966. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday when we had anatomy lecture from 8 to 9, it was followed by 9 to 12 in the laboratory doing gross anatomy dissection. And no one was going to wear a tie yeah. and do that. And so there was this tremendous rebellion that took place. Um, but that, that's just a reminder of, of how important the words are and the impact. Look, you see what I'm talking about that, and that memory comes yeah. zipping back to me. Um, and and we, we talked a little bit about this before. The, you know, one of my um, curiosities right now is to work with this relationship dynamic between you know, health professionals and the right. people that they're caring for and... You know, you know, right away, sort of saying that, you know, I'm the that the tie signals the authority, and right. you know, I I think that shuts down a lot of conversation right away with people. Well, it does, especially when you're in the one down position of yeah, exactly. dare you question the authority. Yeah, what happens to people who question the authority? That's a whole right. <clears throat> political yeah. football. But you know, we were talking about partnerships earlier, and. I, I think what clicked for me just now was, so who are the people, we don't have to spend much time on this, but right. who are the people who send me patients? Right, yeah, yeah. They're like-minded people who read my notes that I send back to them, yeah. who learn from them because one of my intentions in keeping documentation of what I do is is the, the record is a docu- legal document of what happened. It's a... It's a reminder to me of what happened so I can look at it next time and remember yeah. what, what we did. But to the referring clinician, it's an instrument not just of information. I mean it as an instrument of education, yeah. basically so I can work myself out of a job. If I send you enough notes about what I do when you send me a child who 
has migraine or wets the bed or has tics or has anxiety or has depression or whatever they have, yeah. maybe you'll come to a workshop that we do or maybe you'll it'll start to click for you what you should do and you don't need to send yeah. patients to me or to or to other con- so-called consultants yeah. for, for doing this we we've, we've been i've been involved with the project right now where we're doing more collaborative um, we're using an encrypted app basically to to do collaborative communication Thanks. so that if we have a if you know especially with uh, you know say chronic pain stuff there's there's always multiple things going on there's a gi issue and there's you know I mean, it's just usually so many things They've got a network of maybe 10 people sometimes, even at minimum. Now, we can't get everybody on the channel. I wish we could, but not everyone's, you know, willing to be involved. But I'm surprised at how many people are and how many how many of the, you know, medical people we get involved. You know, basically the person receiving care um, who decides to do this can invite whoever they want to, you know. And, and it could be it could be a, a real great use, um, with especially with somebody who's dealing with an aging, you know, parent with early dementia or, you know, where you get to, you know, they, they can say, you know, kind of like having a proxy, but your, your child would basically be able to see all the communication because maybe the, you know, that, that aging parent wants to as much as possible be in, you know, communicating with all these medical people, but they're, you know, if they don't have the, 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 the training or the, you know, they, they really haven't been as involved in their, you know, process their entire life, they, they don't have the, the, the skill to understand everything that's being thrown at them. And so then they take that information sometimes and try to bring it back to their, their child. But it, there's the telephone game. It gets lost in translation yep. a little bit. But then if everyone kind of is on the same page, I also find that um, the, the, um, the medical professionals are just a little bit better with their word choices. <laughs> you know, because they know there are other people watching. I see this educational piece happening where... You know, especially if there's somebody between these, you know, imaginary lines of sort of holistic, you know, tr- traditional allopathic care, um, they start to kind of learn from each other a little bit. Oh, you, you, you know, that's that's actually a really good idea. Or even, you know, I think both sides sometimes have have opinions about the other side that aren't always right. And until they have a, a rapport and relationship, they hold on to some of these things. So, I, I've, I've, and the other thing that happens, which is really really interesting, is that. The, the the person you know whose whose care group this is sometimes they'll start to play the different people too you know and I'll I'll hear I'll hear them say something oh so and so told me this and then so then I have to say oh, I better check in on that it doesn't sound right to me so I call them and find out they never said that or you can have the opportunity I mean I'm I'm very impressed and, and kudos to you for doing this project because the opportunity to make an in progress shift yeah oh let me let me just comment on that uh now dr so-and-so said this but i know what i'm hearing is that and and the family may not have had the courage or or may not have noticed it in the same way yeah. and so one way to look at that is to think that <clears throat> it's interesting you you triggered a, a memory for me again <laughs> complicated story i won't tell the whole thing but in 1996 i had a small grant from the Maternal T- Child Health Bureau, federal, <clears throat> excuse me, federal grant, and it was called Collaborative Office Rounds. And the rule, you could only apply to this, for this, if you had a, both a pediatrician and a child psychiatrist as co, 
investigators, co-applicants. Mm, if yeah, you didn't have yeah. that, they're not even going to look at the application. And the idea was to train through this process community pediatricians in aspects of developmental and behavioral pediatrics, all about communication. And the rule, so much for yeah, r- yeah. The, the, the federal rule in the conduct of these rounds, collaborative office rounds, was you had to discuss a patient or a series of patients with the same problem that was unsolved yeah. in order to solicit the participatory views, recommendations, ideas of all the people assembled. And their recommended as- assembly was between 10 and 20 people, okay. including community-based, academic-based, whatever. That project is still going. It started 20 years ago. It started as a three-year grant, then it became a five-year grant, and now it's being run by successors, as it were, former trainees of of mine. And now they do it by, um, what do you call it, live video. um, Skype or telemedical. It's a a, a Skype-like teleconference. And uh, because they do it way early in the morning, which is when we used to do it too, and I don't have to get up at that hour, (laughs) I haven't gone so much. (laughs) But it works. That's the cool thing. When I've done it with them, I'm impressed. I can get the video of the whole thing. They get my voice. I'm not there. They're yeah. each there with a microphone, and it it works just like it worked because especially with they know each other, and then you come to know each other, and it was such a wonderful process to hear especially works in progress. Yeah. And then we would say to the people, you know, so you've heard these recommendations. Now, when are you going to see this patient again? Two weeks. Okay, so... Either next time or the time after, you have to report to us. You get so we'd all get the benefit of the ongoing work, and it was like. And I would say to the patient, if it was, if I was presenting a case, I would say to them, before, was it okay for you if I, I won't use your name, I'll de-identify everything, but can yeah. I present your case to a group of doctors, getting together to talk about best yeah. ways to help? Nobody said no. Yeah, Patients that's exactly what we're thinking that, too. You know, there's just there's just so much. It's it's so rich with information. Exactly. And, you know, I think eventually one of the doctors that I'm working with is also um, as part of this project. So if we if they work with us this way, he also is going to gather all of their um, medical information that they have on digital file for them from different places. So then, you know, they also have control over the medical information, which is another big piece that's going on is that, you know, people can often, you know, they can they can spend, you know, weeks trying to get a hold of all their records before they get to the next person that after they know that they need to see a different kind of specialist or maybe it's something in, you know, functional medicine or something. It's yeah. just taking them to a new, uh, you know, a new place, but they still need all that information and I think them having some some control over that, but then from what we're thinking too is that we have all these conversations. We also have the, you know, medical records so if we're able to de-identify at some point and use this as a as a you know research type thing it's just you know especially well, with the mystery the mystery medical conditions because you know they what's the term for it when you when they can't figure out what's wrong with you <laughs> idiopathic idiopathic right? what a great lousy word <laughs> <laughs> so so it gets to that it gets to the point where you know once they become idiopathic they're sort of out of the system to some extent. You know, there's like, okay, well, we're not having enough success here with you. I'm sorry. This is, we're, you know. So, you know, when you're growing up, you, you're told in, by the media and your family and everything that the three most important words in the world are I love you. In medicine, the three most important words really are I don't know. 
and and then followed by but I'll help you find out. Yes. And and <clears throat> so it's so important. I have like a hundred things running through my mind. This is such a fun conversation. I uh so so let me get back. So when I started doing all developmental behavioral pediatrics yeah, yeah. and stopped doing general pediatrics because the need was so huge. And so for listeners, how huge is the need? If you categorize all those issues that everybody would legitimately consider emotional, mental health, behavioral developmental issues in children, <clears throat> the need is so immense worldwide yeah. and much more in the third world than in, oh, yeah. than in the Western world. Or in, <clears throat> or in the third world in America. Right, exactly. That if you increase the number of developmental behavioral pediatricians, child psychiatrists, child psychologists, and pediatric social workers a hundredfold tomorrow, yeah. there would still be plenty of people without care. Yeah, That's how I, awful I it is. It's so awful. So, I mean, do I spend any time bemoaning that? Well, no, I'd rather spend my time helping people right. and teaching others how to do the help. Um, and and uh, so I, I continued to do this and then... W- we in our program developed a reputation in the community over the years of, well, they're the they're the specialists and they're the end of the line. So if, if nothing is working, you can send it to them and they'll do their thing, and that became the name because people were afraid of the word hypnosis and they yeah. were afraid of biofeedback. They never heard of that. And, yeah. But in in the best way to think about that is that those are all self regulation methodologies the yeah. current current lingo is mindfulness right. mindfulness and hypnosis are really pretty similar if not identical there's a book called mindfulness and hypnosis that, that's quite a wonderful book that people w- may want to read the author is michael yapko i can yeah, i yeah. can give an ad okay because it's not me that's right <laughs> well if, if we if, if if you have anything to push i'm happy to put it out there. i know you wrote a book so you know we we can if there's anything in there you think is is of value at any point or anything comes up, we can... it's valuable. But I I don't you know I've often wondered. People see the book on my shelf and they say, "Oh, can I get that book?" I say, "Yeah, well, it's really written for for doctors and therapists yeah. and other people who take care of." It. And I I'd be you know I'd say if you bought the book, you'd be on the phone calling me. What does this mean? What does that mean? You know, and I, I wouldn't have any time to see anybody. You know? <laughs> So, uh, but there yeah. may be some medical people out there that I think would benefit from he- hearing your perspective. You know, coming from you know this conversation and where they see yeah. that you came from. I think there's 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 a lot of things missing in the way that we sort of bring that information <coughs> to the public too, or, or just in terms of schooling. Okay, well, the book is called Hypnosis and Hypnotherapy with Children, and and I it's a two author book. It used to be. Olness and Gardner, then it was Olness and Cohen, and this this is currently the fourth edition. Okay. It's called, uh, and the authorship is Cohen and Olness because my partner insisted that I be first author on this edition. So, okay. and the fifth edition is in our brain and not yet, not yet <laughs> on paper, <clears throat> but but we're working on it. Um, what led you into hypnotherapy? What was what, what, well, that's a funny story. Um, when I came to interview that weekend before Thanksgiving, <clears throat> I was sitting with Karen Olness, who later became my, long, you know, for all these years, my clinical partner in most everything I do, teaching and, and clinical work and writing and everything else. She was an incredible woman. Um, and a leader, by the way, in, in international health. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a separate 
conversation. But uh, so I was meeting with her, and I don't remember if it was the beginning of the day or the end of these one of these days where you're an hour with this person, an hour with that person, inter- you know, seven yeah. interviews yeah, telling yeah. your whole story, <clears throat> and. Um, and we were talking, and she was sitting on her side of the desk, and I was on the other side of the desk. And she's, and the phone rang, and she said, "Oh, I have to take this." I said, "Do you want me to step out?" She said, "No, no, no, but you, you know, it'll just be a few minutes, I promise." <clears throat> well, it wasn't just a few minutes, but in that few minutes, I noticed there was a stack of paper on her desk, and I was trying to look at it. It was upside down, yeah. and and it said hypnosis with children. And I thought to myself. Holy cow, I've traveled to Minneapolis from Arizona. What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> really, that was my thought. And I yeah. thought, so then after she got off the phone, she saw that I was looking at it and she said, I said, um, do you do this? She said, yeah, you can, you can have that bibliography if you want. So I took it and I put it away and then I got home to Arizona. Remember, this is the late 70s. You yeah. don't just. You know, just get an article. Yeah. You know? Yep. So I looked at it and I thought, well, I'll get four or five of this. The way you got an article, I mean, so I feel... Microfiche? So, feel so... Uh, <laughs> no, are you kidding? In the hospital in Fort Defiance, Arizona? Oh, my God, I can't imagine. So I looked in Index Medicus, but that's just a that's just a file system, right? I mean, it's not... doesn't have articles. They don't yeah. have those journals there. No, the way you get a copy of an article is you write a letter, ah. snail mail, yep. right, to the... Uh, American Medical Association Library Archives in Chicago. Please, may I have these? Yeah. And I don't think you have to pay. I don't remember paying for it. Yeah. And then you wait two, three, four weeks. Yeah. Today I put it in, and 15 seconds later I have it on <laughs> right, my computer. Right. You know? I mean, it's, when you think of things in that perspective, it's remarkable. Yeah. And I don't feel old. And, and yet the, the interesting thing about that is that when you – when when things when things slow down in process that way, you you spend a lot of time with that one piece, you know, <laughs> you, right. you you because the next piece might not come for another month anyway. That's right. And, and you know, yeah. So anyway. I read about it. I got interested in it. Uh, a couple months later, they offered me the job. Uh, a few months after that, I I and and I agreed. I know I accepted the position. It's interesting. She said to me when she called me, she said, "We." We finished the rest of our interviews. We're pleased to offer you the position. And um, it was a Friday. And she said to me, I know this is an important decision in your life, in your career, in your time, and I'd like you to take all the time you need and call me Monday. <laughs> Thanksgiving weekend was this? Or no, it was, no, it was, it was, no, it was later. It was right before New Year's. And, and I thought, okay. And I said, okay, fine. But the, the, the hypnotic-like message in the communication was, you know, out of my conscious awareness. It's like, take all the time you need, call me Monday. <laughs> it was Friday. Take all the time you need between yeah. Friday and Monday. Yeah. And, and it turns out, you know, we had, because it was a pretty big deal, you know, so my wife and I spent a lot of time talking about it. So, yeah, yeah we should yeah. do this, you know. <laughs> I, I, I use a I use something I, I learned this from a teacher when I was d- doing craniosacral work. But you know we have these time constraints in our schedules, and sometimes you know someone's process may really kick up towards the end of the session, um, and <clears throat> you know stuff's going on, and you and you know you but you really want to be mindful of time too. So one of the things that we use is you know so take as much time as you need in the next two minutes, 
to you Ex- know, exactly you know, and decide what you want to, where you want you know what you want to do from here you know I mean it, because they, they know things are kind of wrapping and but anyway yeah. so that morphs that little piece of communication morphs into a discussion about what hypnosis is and is not so that people get away from this silly mystique and set of of crazy myths and misconceptions that have been perpetrated by the media yeah you can see it on tv and cartoons and everything else and it's a conversation i have with anybody before we ever embark on doing any formal hypnosis training because this is part of our natural lingo we say things in our everyday language that are really pieces of spontaneous hypnosis Mm. like time flies when you're having fun really and you can and you can give people examples. My examples are quite simple. Everybody resonates with them. Ever been dropped off at a birthday party by your mom? Yep, five o'clock. So have a great time. I'll pick you up at eight. Comes at eight. It's time to go. No way. I just got here. <laughs> no, honey. It was three hours ago. No way. Yeah. It feels like five minutes, right? Yeah. And the reverse is also true. God forbid your relatives going in for surgery at one o'clock, and you. You're pacing around the waiting room for an hour, and you look at your watch, and it's five after one. But it sure feels like an hour because you're waiting and you're worried and whatever. And so those phenomenology, if we put them in hypnosis lingo, lingo, we would call that time regression and time progression. But they're natural hypnotic phenomena that we could then help the patient use to help their problem. So time progression is used a lot when we help a child who has to endure repeated painful procedures. They're yeah. in the hospital. They have to get a spinal tap. They have to get IV. They have to get chemo. Yeah. Not just children, of course, or yeah. adolescents, but adults as well use these. So so do you want to be here while you're having the chemo, or would you like to be somewhere else? Mm. Oh, I'd rather be somewhere else. Oh, fine. So go to Hawaii or go to the moon, or go to your backyard, or go to your grandma's kitchen and smell the cookies. Do whatever you do. Yeah. <clears throat> so now I'll start the IV here, and and then the nurse will give the chemo, or whatever they do, and then um, you can let it seem like three hours of vacation in your mind, and then the ten minutes will be done, and you'll be surprised how easy it was. Yeah. Now all of that is very hypnotic, yeah, and meant to be, yeah, because it talks to a different part of the mind that you already know is motivated to feel good and doesn't yeah. like to feel bad. So I want to come back to something you said earlier about how symbol, single words can stick with you for a long time. It reminded me <clears throat> of a patient. I want to make sure that I do this in case they're listening. <laughs> um, that I started to see recently. Young woman. I'll make her 18. I think she's younger. Uh, who is referred... Uh, for abdominal pain that she's had for a year. Mm. And it has kept her out of school. Yeah, It has kept her most recently out of competitive sports where she's really good. Yeah. <clears throat> it has kept her um, depressed, really depressed. So much so that her primary doctor put her on antidepressants. That's a whole other discussion, whether primary doctors should be doing that. Yeah, but, that's, yeah. but then there's a shortage. So, 
And turns out she had had a surgical procedure six, eight months before, gallbladder and something else, and but recovered from that and and said that this pain was similar but worse but different and couldn't be that. Didn't know what it was. <clears throat> so they went to a Mecca, which will remain nameless. Okay. And the the doctor at the Mecca I can probably guess, but yeah. <laughs> said you know, this is IBS and uh, irritable bowel syndrome, and you're probably going to have it the rest of your life, so you may as well get used to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's, I, I've always thought of things like that as being like a form of, you know, like witch doctory in, in, in some respects, because once you've, once you've defined it for them and then given them a term... Yep. It's it's kind of self-propagating. You, what happens then? Right, and I know the answer because I I have a I have a colleague who's now ninety four, who lives in New Orleans. He's the only guy I know who has a joint appointment in in the medical school in in um, surgery and psychiatry. Yeah, and he's in his 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 practical occupation had been in occupational medicine, so he's like one of the world's experts in treatment of burns with hypnosis. Oh wow! And he has many people who worked in in factories and and had immersion burns where they stepped in a vat that oh. that where you know that the physiology was identical on both legs, yeah. and he'd be called to, he'd be called to see them in the emergency room. And he and he would say to them, "Hi, I'm Doctor Ewan. I'm here to help you with hypnosis, and I'd like you to to let the regular treatment heal the right leg, and I'd like you to let the regular treatment plus hypnosis heal the left leg." Mm. Right. And he has photograph after photograph after patient after patient of the left leg healing faster than the right leg, even though they both got the same had the same identical injury at the same time by the same thing treated the same with good burn care and and the one that had rapid healing with hypnosis and a lot of other suggestions got better faster. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ewan wrote a paper many years ago that has stuck with me that said uh, people with what he calls the constant pain syndrome yeah. often have been told you're just going to have to live with it. Wow. And what that means to them internally is the only way I get rid of this pain is to die. Oh, wow. So it's not, I mean, I get chills thinking oh, of me it. too. And, and, I, and I think all I could do when, when that young woman said that is to say, I'm so sorry. Would it be okay with you if that isn't true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so what's that? That's a kind of hypnotic way of talking. We haven't done any formal hypnosis, yeah. but it's a way of saying, I want to put a toe in the doorway that invites you to think about it differently, even though I already know the answer. Right. And she and she kind of had this startled look on her face and she said, well, yes, it would be OK. And they were just waiting for the opportunity. You just you just, you know, and and. And and the permission to kind of think that they could actually you know change that that track for themselves. Right. The the my uh, my um, 
best way of understanding that, I, I, I like it. I, I'm not nearly as good as some of my colleagues are about quoting people and remembering things that people have yeah. said, but there was a book written probably in the early 80s called The Silent Pulse. You would love this book. Oh, yeah. It was written by a guy named George Leonard, who was at one time an editor of Look Magazine. Do you remember Look Magazine? I, I remember the, I, I can see the letters, but I have no idea what it, it was, was about. It was the same size as Life Magazine. Yeah, yeah. So it was one of the two that were like outsized, strange size magazines. Yeah, yeah. Pres- subscription, not prescription, subscription <laughs> uh, magazine. <clears throat> and, uh, and George Leonard, The Silent Pulse is, he never uses the hip- word hypnosis in the book, but it's really all about hypnosis yeah. and, and meditative work and, 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 and the focus is around his um, life work as an Aikido master. Ah. Right? So one one of my teachers when I when I went to school for body work was an Aikido master and every every lesson had a Aikido element to it. Right. So, so and I knew I knew that about you yeah, from prior yeah. conversations that <clears throat> so I I the, but what I remember from the book that made me think of it just now is he calls this work just what you said authorizing the unconscious. Mm. So that's what I think I was doing. When I said that, Yeah, it was like you said, oh, I was just, some part of their mind was just waiting yeah. for somebody as though they were disempowered. They were yeah. disempowered yeah. by what they were previously told. So they needed that. It was not undone yet. And and I'm still, I've only just met her and we're, we're just getting going. But I... And they have to build that confidence back in their own... own. That's you know, right. Belief system again. And, and she's so vulnerable yeah. as an adolescent. Yeah. So I, I hope that they'll stick with me. I hope that we can get there. Yeah, yeah I know. And, you know, it's part of what that, that keeps me going. Uh, and every time I think I've seen it all, <laughs> I meet somebody who has met some well-intentioned doctor. I want to take yeah. that away from them. They were well-intentioned, just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and I, I think the... Right now, one of the things that's coming to me as we're having this conversation is, so when, when I came to work here, I you know looked up everyone's stuff on the on the website because, you know, I I, I met with um, with Dave and Deb and you know sat down had this great conversation with them and and felt like I I like these guys and the fact that they're so interested in what I'm doing because I spent you know I, I spent a lot of time in the in the, in the dark in the industry before people started kind of getting a sense of what this strange kind of treatment that I was doing was when I got into doing craniosacral therapy. And it's got a terrible name, so, I mean, it's unfortunately. <laughs> but I would say the same with, you know, the, 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 with hypnotherapy, I think. You know, I saw, your, I saw your, you know, stuff up on your bio, and I was like, it was a curiosity. But I also, the first, I, I remember thinking that, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of hypnotherapy is the dangling watch, right? And, and, and really, it's, it's the... It's it's the words. It's it's really the. I mean, what I'm getting from you th- through this is, is that it's 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 really the way that you sort of open things up with 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 language and dialogue with them. Right. And I think a lot of people don't don't know that. And that's you know one of the things I'm trying to touch on with these podcasts is that we don't know much about what what we're doing sometimes. Uh, what what other professionals are doing in. And they could be right next door to us in an office, as you were, you know, right. and and yet we, you know, we, we're not we're not probing enough on our own and not realizing the resource of someone like you and the, and the experience of someone like you, unless you happen to p- across your book or an article that you wrote or something. So yeah, 
It's very interesting, you know, and I was thinking that one of the things I, I aim to teach children and, and their parents is that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. My job is to be a coach. I have a colleague yeah. in, in um, where does he live? <laughs> uh, Connecticut, who who's a, a psychologist, sees children and adults, and he introduces himself to all of his new patients as, I'm an imagination coach. Mm. And I think that's wonderful language. Yeah. And most people know what coaches are, although you have to be careful that they haven't had bad coaches. Right. Um, so that's part of the they report. Might be recovering stuff. from those. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's another PTSD. We don't want to talk about that. And, and uh, uh, but you know, I my job is teacher and and coach. And so, you know, what happens when your baseball coach does? Your baseball coach hit the ball for you? No, they tell you. Keep your eye on the pitcher's hand and stop looking at the good-looking girl over there in the stands. <laughs> She's going to applaud when you get a hit, but you're only going to get a hit if you keep your eye on the ball, That's not right. on her. That's right. you know? <clears throat> and, and the same thing for soccer or piano or violin or stage performance or what, whatever it is that you're doing. You're going to get better because you want to and because you learn the tools. And my job is to help you learn the tools so that you can go home and practice them. Because, And when you come here for a visit... I want you to come with your hypnosis, not for it. So even the shift in the prepositional word is critical. So I always ask my patients to keep track of what they're doing at home and to bring me the calendar and show me how they're doing. Not because it's homework, but because I can't move in with you. Not going to do it. You know, and yeah, so that's the that's the orientation that I have. And um, that's why I have very few long-term patients. Yeah. Some, but most are Me too, three, four, same. six visits, and they know what they do, and they they're launched. And then sometimes they call a year later, and they Tune say, up. "Yeah, can I come in for a visit or two? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And they run with the ball. Yeah, and I think that's we should really direct things that way in general. I mean, I think you could be a very important person in someone's um, long-term process as a touchstone because. You know, those those old things are still going to be there to some extent and something could trigger it. And then, it, you know, they know they can just kind of, you know, come back and, and, you know, help you tune something. You might pick up, you know, just a little piece in that in that visit again. Then, you know, they're good for a while again. My greatest joy comes from being able to teach others and in the process to teach them with video clips of a given child at different ages. And so that's one of the blessings uh-huh. of getting older is that you have these people, and you can call them up and say, you know, it's been about five years since we had a video. Would you want to come in? No charge. Come yeah. in. We'll talk. We'll do a video. We'll edit it. I'll send you a copy, and then you can go with me to Europe, but on the video, yeah. not not in the plane seat next to me. I can't pay, can't pay you for that. But <laughs> but uh, and and so I have this I have this one that I was recently teaching in Germany, and I, I have this one that I showed of a kid who was. 12 when I met him and or when I first video I have him then I have a video of him at 15 at 18 and 22 and he had um, and then I had conversation with him three years later but I don't have the latest video but he went from being a kid at 12 with really quite a dramatic version of Tourette syndrome to being off medicine, honor student, and and uh, 
star athlete on three different teams in high school, honor student in college, went to law school. When I last talked to him, he had graduated law school, was engaged to be married, and was thinking about whether he should go to divinity school. Wow. Not to be not to be a minister, but to be a theologian in addition to being a lawyer. So I don't know what he's doing today, except I think he's probably married with a few kids. I mean, I, but I need to get a follow-up video. Yeah. So, but but but, the, but, but that shows the so important trajectory you were just talking. About. And and uh, people, you know, especially when you, and you're dealing with parents a lot, obviously. But and, you know, I think it's every parent's nightmare that they have this, you know, child with this health condition that they're going to have to, you know, be, that that you know are going to be within their care for the rest of their lives. Or that they just aren't going to have this experience with yeah, with a child in the way that they had envisioned their right. their expectations have been sort of crushed, and so it's it's hard working with them in that situation because I, I do the same with newborns. Sometimes I get a newborn and it's really kind of bad place health wise, struggled. Maybe they were preemie or um, just right. you know failing to thrive as they is, is the new term that's out there, mm. which is also just a horrible. I mean, the, the words in in medicine, modern medicine, right now. Really need to be worked with. See, before I was before I was uh, what I am now. Many years ago, one of my early papers was a piece that was published in a book, <laughs> and it was a uh, something like a, a novel approach to failure to thrive, done as an algorithm. Yeah. Um, and I would never. I mean, I don't. I don't see those patients anymore. But that's yeah. another discussion. But. Yeah, it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, but back to my point of, you know, seeing this seeing this timeline and the change and the positivity, you know, how how they how they rebuild, how how someone rebuilds after, you know, a trauma like that. I I use my story all the time because I, you know, in my mid 20s, I started having, you know, I mean, really, it started earlier. I think by the time I was in, I had a bad foot issue, and I've showed you this stuff before. But I, but I started having, even in, I remember in high school basketball games, every once in a while, I'd throw out my back and just limp around, and through the rest of the game, I'd, I'd continue to play through it. And I, you know, I sort of did that on and off through my twenties. One, you know, one time after another, one thing, one thing or another, I would somehow end up with this. But I was doing, I was a musician in the in my twenties for a good part of it, trying to possibly do it professionally but um i think there were a number of factors going on for me it's never completely one physical piece that you know that was probably the start of things but what the trigger was could have been you know more emotional psychological spiritual aspects of of where i was in my life at that at that point and why it kept happening with more frequency and then for people to see me at 46 in a very different situation where I'm, you know, physically very, very healthy. I have really, you know, no pain to speak of <laughs> at the moment. And uh, I, I think it, it gives people a lot of hope. I, I think the video idea of, of doing this, and I, I've started thinking about this a little bit more with the babies that I work with because parents will find me on Facebook and friend me, and then I get to see pictures of these babies now. Uh. My, 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 I've been doing it for only 11 years, but... You know, for my my oldest baby is 11 years old now, and, wow. I, and and I remember this this little guy. You know what he looked like. He was he was this little, he looked like this little tiny bald headed businessman. You know, kind of chubby and chunky, <laughs> and he's this beanpole, you know, toe headed blondie now. You know, so it's but it's fun, isn't it fun? Oh, and it it's is. so affirming. A quick quick story. I get this call one day. 
Uh, this is several years ago. Hi, Dr. Corn. This is Megan. How are you? Naturally assuming that I would know who she is. <laughs> like she's the only Megan in Minnesota? I don't think so. <laughs> I must know a dozen, maybe more. <clears throat> I said, fine. She says, do you remember me? Of course, but say some more. Well, I, I had migraine, past tense. She used the past tense. I had migraine. I said, well, you know, Megan, I know a lot of Megans, and I know some other Megans who had migraine. Oh, well, I was about 10. I said, and how old are you now? 21. I said, oh, you haven't seen me in a long time. I said, I know who you are. I'm looking on my <laughs> computer while we're talking, and I found her. And she said, I said, well, how are you? I said, certainly you just didn't call me just because to say hi. Well, I actually wonder if, if I could come and see you. Well, sure. Um, what's up? Well, I had another migraine just yesterday. It's my first one in 11 years or something like yeah. that. And I said, oh, wow. Um, I wonder why. Well, I, I don't know. Um, so could I come see you? I said, sure. So she comes to see me and she tells me, I said, so, so tell me about your life. She says, well, I'm graduating college in two months. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I said, huh, do you think that has anything to do with the migraine? <laughs> she says, I never thought of that. So she's living it. Yeah. She never thought of it. Oh, yeah. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I said, well, you can't leave. You can't leave yet. I said, so what have you been doing with your self-hypnosis in this time? She says, oh, you know, I use it for different stuff, like to fall asleep or for anxiety or whatever. I said, do you yeah. just do it? She said, well, usually I just do it. But if I'm, like, really stressed, sometimes I listen to that tape. I said, the cassette tape that I made you 11 years ago? I said, that's for t a 10-year-old. She said, oh, yeah, but it still works. Yeah. It was so sweet. Yeah. And, and, the, and, then, and then I got a note from her a few months later that she was fine, no more headaches, and... I don't remember yeah. if she said she found a job or she was going to graduate school. I I, I lost contact, but yeah. I mean that's those are the blessings, you know. Yeah, I, just like just like getting that eleven-year-old photo. Wow. Yeah, you know I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a when I was here, uh, there was I think a, a woman I was treating. She was a, somehow related to there's a there's an oral surgeon who sends people to me every once in a while, and she was a family member of of hers, but she she walked in and and. Uh, she apparently walked past you or something and said, "Is is that is that guy's name, uh, Doctor Dan?" And I said, "Yeah, he treated me when I was a kid in Arizona." I don't know. Did, did I not tell you the story? Boy, I don't remember. But anyway, I, I I I'll I'll I'll. She's Native American? No, she's not. She's she's white, but her her um. Her parents were doing some work down in Arizona, and for whatever reason, she ended up w with you. And uh, she's probably, I don't know, maybe 30-ish, I'm guessing. Maybe about, maybe a little older. Maybe she's yeah, like she's 35. No, I don't remember. I don't remember hearing that story, but yeah. but I could have. But but it, it, it and, and she, you know, she said, "Did he? Did was he ever? A, you know, a doctor in Arizona?" And I said, "Yeah, he was." Um, she was gonna. She was gonna maybe try to come in and, and you know just say hi at some point. I think we maybe even checked your office at one point and you weren't in there. So. Well, that's funny. But yeah. Well, someday if you can find her name, <laughs> yeah. that that would be very helpful oh, to yeah. me. Oh yeah, great. Wow.
So, so if just kind of getting back to the topic and kind of maybe wrapping a little bit with the, um, the behavioral, um, you know, work that you do, is, is, is there anything that in, in terms of regulation that you're kind of, uh, w- what do you do to kind of help, um, or maybe just to give some, just somebody listening the sense of, of a, a simple way of explaining how you help with, with, you know, self-regulation when it comes to pediatrics? Well, I alluded to it earlier when I said that the rapport is the most important thing for me. Yeah. So, excuse me, I I do things that, except perhaps for some of the people who have trained with me who have decided that this might be okay or right for them also to do, I don't think too many doctors do this. Yeah. And and their excuse for not doing it is, well, I don't have time. Mm. That's an illusion. Yeah. It's it's all in the how, Yeah. not the what. And, and not the necessarily the when, but yeah, that part whole, of that it, whole time piece. You know, we can get very caught up if it, if we could if we could have a little bit. I mean, if 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 the specialist that we go to see when we first start dealing with the problem could just take a big chunk of time for listening that first that first time, I think we could we could really get to the bottom of so many different things so much quicker. And once they're set into the system for a period of time, they become way harder to deal with. And yet we we we're missing that time piece. And doctors don't, and nurses too, don't realize that patients don't mind. Yeah. In fact, they like it. Yeah. I sometimes say, it, it, it's, it's, I have six competing thoughts here. Let me fix my mouth. Um, it's very, very rare, like one out of 500 maybe, for a parent to say at the end of my first visit, my first visits are 90 minutes. Yeah. It's very rare for a parent to say at the end of that time, so what do you think he has? Yeah. What's the prescription? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Because I folded most of that into our conversation, maybe not even at a conscious level, yeah. but it's there. And that's why they don't ask, because yeah. they know. Yeah. Sometimes I will get an intuition that they're wondering about something, and I'll say... I often say this at the end of a first visit. I'll say to the kid, so how did I do today? Yeah. Always catches them off guard because no doctor ever asked them that. I'm not stupid enough to ask if I know I've done crappy. <laughs> right. You know? If, if I know I'm doing crappy, I, I was like, okay, don't tell a joke. They're not in a funny mood. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Get, get it together, fix it before we go any further. Yeah. Um, and and usually they go, oh, fine, or good, or thumbs up. And, and how did you do? Oh, okay. I said, no, no, no. You did great. And how about your mom and dad? A? The kid usually, given an opportunity, will say A minus or <laughs> yeah, B plus, yeah. you know. And, and, and I may also say to the parent, so when you were thinking about this visit, did you think you were going to come in with the problem and go out without it? Hmm. And sometimes they snicker, not because they didn't think that, but because their fantasy <laughs> yeah, yeah, was yeah. that they did think that. Yeah, yeah. But then they realized that it was a fantasy. So they say, well, not really, but we sort of hoped maybe. And then I, you know, I take out my magic wand yeah. and I say, well, um, if you want miracles, you have to go to church. I don't yeah. do miracles. But Harry Potter came for, came over for a visit, and he loaned me this magic wand. So, <laughs> so if that works, call me. But 
if it doesn't work and you're not completely all better tomorrow or tonight, then I'll see you next time and we'll get to work on how best to get some yeah. help for this problem. Yeah. Because I'm a really good coach. Yeah. And if you don't need this, I always ask yeah. in the first visit, do you need this for anything? No. Are you going to miss it when it's gone? No. They think they're stupid questions. They're right. not. They're right. really questions about are you motivated? Is there second so-called secondary gain, which is a phrase I don't use, but yeah. but you know, is there some benefit to this? Because if you're not going to miss it and you don't need it for anything, I'm absolutely 100% certain I can help you. I just don't know how to predict the future. I don't know how much, how fast, when exactly, but most people are surprised. Yeah. So you hear all of the positive suggestion that kind of goes with that <clears throat> so it's about the rapport it's about helping people see the glass is half full not half empty yeah you asked me before we started what is health so i'm going to tell you what i yeah, wrote, if, wrote if, down if, just <clears throat> something to finish this this phrase health is health is knowing who and how you are liking what you do and how you feel how you are with other people and learning how to get where you want to get that's great. And 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 that's what I do. But but I ask people to keep track. Yeah. I, I ask people to learn some new things. Most people like to learn new stuff. I ask them to do some experiments. I, I tell them, I don't care if you call this hypnosis. Yeah. I don't care if you call it visualization, imagery, meditation, mind work, mindfulness. Imagination, call it blah blah. Whatever. Yeah. I don't care. I'll show you how. We'll look at some videos next time of other kids talking about it. And mm-hmm. how to do it, mm-hmm. and then, then I'll show you what to do, and then your job is to do it. Yeah, and they do. And and just just sort of, I, and, and that's that's the piece of empowering that you right. you you're basically you're lining up the the, the toolbox for them. You're right. saying, you know, you you know, you're here because you need a toolbox, basically. And you know, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna give you some things to put in there. And then you just have to work with it and start, start, and then start giving me feedback. Let me know what you're finding. And, and that's what I tell the clinicians who come to our workshops and want to learn and, and often get stuck and struggle because they're looking for a prescriptive way. Yeah. And I'm, I'm about telling them, look, I can tell you what I do and how I do it and show you videos. But what's really the essence of the work is if going this way doesn't work, I have to go that way. Yeah. And if that way doesn't work, I have to go this way. And if this way doesn't work, I have to have another way. <clears throat> and, develop. and understanding there's no ab- absolutes in this. You know, exactly. You, yeah, until you step through one ring, you don't know what's, what's in the next. Right. Yeah, that's great. So. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing this conversation with me. I feel like this is a very helpful thing for so many people, so many parents who I think could kind of get a glimpse into some stuff that's going on and, and, and what you can kind of, someone, someone like you, or th- that there are services out there like this, I think. Right. And, 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 and for other you know, people in pediatrics, I've, I find, because I've, I'm in, in the pediatric world, uh, we get a little busy as, as pediatricians in, in you know, the, the, the basics of, of dealing with immunizations and just regular check-in visits. And that, you know, maybe, maybe we should leave a little time for, for parents to sort of, you know, say a little bit more about what their concerns are um, with their children and, and make, make sure that there's, you know, some, some dialogue going on there that a, a five-minute visit might not cover 
so that and 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 just to be you know to be connected better to people like you who can do this kind of work with with kids and really improve the lives of families and you know communities by doing this kind of work i would like people to not say about me what i have heard them say about some other clinicians and say well have you done any therapy before yes well with whom and then they tell me and a lot of times i don't know the name i say well what did they say to do well they gave me this medicine Uh uh-huh did you take it yeah did it help no um did you tell them no or yes i told them they upped the dose i said has it helped you no how long you been taking it a year how long you been seeing this person a year two years does it help you to go there no yeah how come you still go i don't know and somehow the follow-up fails a lot of times in these situations it's like you know out out the door some pretty powerful medication that you know you're you're you're, you're banking on but it doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna it's gonna work and when it doesn't work I think just like we talked about earlier, you think, well, that's, I guess, you know, I guess I got to live with it. And this might be the thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because this is the doctor. This is the person telling well, me. They said it's going to work. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not what I said. I said here, and I, I, I'm all about skills, not pills. Yeah. But as a physician, yeah. if I believe that you come to a place where medication may be helpful temporarily yeah. or more than that, I'm going to suggest a medication and I promise to suggest something that's safe and that's helpful and to tell you all about it and to tell you what to notice. And if you grow an extra nose or ear when you start taking it, you got to call me right. and stop taking yeah. it, you know, and uh, and then you got to come back. Yeah. And, and don't call me in a year and say, refill the medicine and not having made appointments. That's not yeah. going to work right. for me. Yeah. Might work for other doctors, but not for me. Yeah, yeah. So. That's great. That's a, That's a good piece to... To, to remember for everyone. Yeah, I hope so. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm I'm pleased that you invited me to do this, and then I'll have to figure out how I get to listen to it. Yes, I'll I'll, I'll send you that link, and <laughs> and uh, you know if there's the, the, there can always be there's always room for a round two. I feel like you know we we kind of we, we covered a lot of ground today, but really really good to you know get into some of this stuff with you. I certainly know you better. Great, thank you. All right. Have a nice have a nice weekend. Thank and, you. Uh, Anna. I wish you happy holidays. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Dr. Dan, folks. What a special guy. Very humble for someone who has done so much in his career, helping people, educating other health professionals, and just being a good human being. So thankful he was able to spend time with me for the podcast, and I think he enjoyed it too. Let me know what you thought of this conversation. You can shoot me an email at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. Also, if you have a guest you think I should have a conversation with, I'd love to hear from you. Be kind to yourself, take care of each other, and be good to your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. 
There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.